And there's three big feelings that if you know how to name them and talk about them in a straightforward way, can really make relationships work better, make whole life work better because they work well in business. One is being able to say, I feel angry. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long-form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. Our next guest has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind transformation for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD from Stanford in 1974, he served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. He has now written more than 40 books, including bestsellers such as Five Wishes, The Big Leap, Conscious Loving, and Conscious Loving Ever After. He has appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, 40 Hours, and others. His latest book is The Genius Zone. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Gay Hendricks. Dr. Gay Hendricks, thank you so darn much for joining us today. My pleasure, Jared. Great to be with you. Well, this first question might be a hard one. And so I I hate starting off with a hard one, but as you look back on your own life, like personally, um, all the principles that you've taught through your books, your counseling. I'm curious to know, what do you think has been the most impactful principle that you've taught and applied to your own life? Mm, Great question. Wow. That does start with a tough one. I would say it has to do with taking personal responsibility in a healthy way. Um, when I first, this is particularly true in my relationship life. When I first got into serious relationships, I I did a lot of projecting. I would project everything onto the other person that it was the other person's fault, and blame the other person. I don't think it ever occurred to me until well into my twenties that I was creating that situation as well as the other person. I mean, it's crazy that I'm, you know, a very smart guy and everything. Why it took me (laughs) (laughs) to my 20s to figure that out. Um, But uh, I think that's the way a lot of it is in relationship, particularly you get lost in your projections and don't realize why you're creating that particular pattern. So that was a huge one for me because it certainly, actually, I figured it out the month before I met my wife, Katie, that we've now been together 43 years. And I don't think I would have been able to have a relationship that lasted 43 years had I not figured that out. You know, instead of saying, why are you doing this to me, to the other person would be, hmm, why would I be creating this particular drama right now? Hmm. What do you think caused that epiphany for you? Well, I think it was probably getting to a place of pain (laughs) and not knowing how to deal with that pain and opening up to a kind of a surrender to the universe to teach me what I needed to know. Uh, Because there was a moment, what actually happened was I was in the midst of an argument with a woman that I'd had an on and off again relationship with during the 1970s. And um this moment I'm going to be talking about here happened in 1979, December of 1979, probably long before you were born, my friend. Uh, but uh, there was a world back there. And uh, on one <laughs> particular... I've heard rumors of it. <laughs> yes. Back when dinosaurs walked the earth before your time. Uh, but in 1979, I, I'd been in this relationship and we'd break up and then we'd get back together and then half a year would go by and then we'd break up again and then a year would go by. So anyway, this drama had been, and every time we'd get together, we'd get into arguments and then uh, we'd spend half our time fighting. And so it was just driving me nuts. You know, I was 30, you know, I was in my thirties then I think. And yes, I was. And why hadn't I figured this out? And so suddenly in the middle of one of these arguments, thanks to grace or something, I got a download, sudden realization 
that this wasn't our 500th argument. It was our 500th version of the same argument. And they all had a pattern to them. And that was like a light going off in my head. Because like I said, up until that moment, I think I just assumed if there was problems, it was her fault. (laughs) She seemed to think that it was exactly the other way around, you know, because she played the blame game with me, too. So we would get lost in this whose fault it was, and nobody would ever take responsibility for it. Eventually, we would make up and make love and go out to dinner and blah, 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 all the things that couples do to kind of pave over the cracks and the, the walls. But um, it, it never really solved our problems until this one day where I had this big download, and I realized that all our arguments had the same pattern. One or both of us or one of the others would not tell the truth about something. And let me just put it in my own uh, pocket here. I would fail to tell the truth about something to her. It might be something I did or might be money I spent or it might be uh, something I'd uh, gone out with another woman or something like that, whatever it was. Or it could be simply a feeling like I'm scared or I'm angry or I'm sad. But whatever it was, I wouldn't talk about that. And instead, I would start projecting blame onto her. And I had this suddenly reala- sudden realization, oh my gosh, what if my withholding things causes me to see her in a negative light? And then I start projecting onto her. And I saw that that pattern had plagued me throughout my life. But I hadn't realized it. You know? And The second thing I realized in this moment was the whole thing about not taking responsibility. We get into blame. I would say it's your fault. She would say it's my fault. Then we go round and round for three days and then we'd get sick of that and, you know, but it would never get resolved. So I realized the only way to resolve a repeated conflict is for one or both persons, preferably both, to take full healthy responsibility for having created it and not worry about whose fault it was because it's never anybody's fault in a close relationship. You know, even if you could get the Supreme Court to declare that everything is all your partner's fault, it wouldn't make a bit of difference in helping you get (laughs) along better with your uh, partner. Because at some point in life, you have to choose between being right and being happy and being right and expressing my genius and have to choose between being right and living in perpetual uh, conflict versus living in a state of serenity. And I went with serenity. But let me tell you then the next thing that happened. The third thing I realized, okay, it's about honesty. It's about taking responsibility. And it's about creativity because I had been sacrificing my creativity because of the relationship. I would, things would go great for a few months and I'd get a book written and then I'd get into the relationship again. And then all my creative energy would go into the hassles of the relationship. And I know I'm not the only person because I've, you know, talked to thousands of people now who often tell me the same thing that they use up their creative energy in hassling with their partner or their business partners or whatever. And so the third thing I realized I was insufficiently committed to my creative process. And I wanted to attract a partner where all three of those things were easy. They weren't hard. You know, I wanted a partner who was willing to be honest, take responsibility, and committed to her creativity. So, like I said, I I was right in the middle of the argument when this dropped into my head from somewhere. And Carol said, what's going on? You've been standing there. You look like you've got hit by a mallet or something. And, uh, I, I, I hadn't said anything for about 10 or 20 seconds while I was trying to digest this. And I told her what I just realized. And I said, we can recreate our relationship right now. I was so on fire. I said, you know, we could change everything right now if we both just committed to being absolutely honest with each other taking responsibility ourselves when things come up rather than blame. And third, if we both made a complete commitment to to our creativity, we wouldn't even have time to hassle each other. So what do you think? And to my great surprise, she said, no, (laughs) she wasn't interested in that. 
<laughs> I was actually stunned. It seemed like such a great idea. And I said, well, what's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong with the idea? And it was one sticking point for her was that <laughs> I'm so glad she said it, that she really only wanted to be in the relationship if we could both agree that I was the one that was wrong. And I said, you know, I always suspected I that, that, but I never heard that <laughs> clearly, you know. <laughs> and so anyway, we broke up at that point, and uh, except for one little thing, uh, by the way, this is quite a long-winded story. I hope this is working for your um, audience. Give me a thumbs up there. Okay, great. Um, so um, this next thing that happened really sealed the deal, though, because I went back to my little cottage that I lived in, and I was, and I just sat down on the floor. And I'm a longtime meditator. I've been meditating for 50 years, and so it's it's customary for me to kind of just sit down, and get quiet when I want to think something out. So I took about an hour. And I really got clear about what I wanted in a relationship. For the first time in my life, I just sat down and really figured it out, you know, and I figured out those three things were supremely important to me, the honesty, the healthy responsibility, and commitment to creativity. And I realized that if I could have those things, everything else could sort of sort itself out. And so I didn't think about, you know, she had to be five, seven, and weigh 123 pounds or anything like that. It was just a question of what were the qualities? And then I did this thing that I think really sealed the deal. I said out loud to the universe, there was nobody there. I just said, okay, universe, this is what I want. And I promise you this, I'll never settle for less. Don't send me anything extraneous. Okay. That was my basic message as I'm not going to settle for anything. Don't tempt me. See, I'd had a bad habit of getting into relationships with women that had an addiction problem. And I grew up in a family where there was a lot of addiction. And I think I just took an unconscious snapshot. Oh, you're supposed to get together with somebody that's getting drunk, stoned, smoking, whatever the addiction was. And I managed to do all of those in my 20s. Um, I was with a woman who was kind of a secret drinker for four years and another one that was, had a bad Valium habit and another one that was a heavy cigarette smoker. So I kind of specialized in saving addicted women from themselves. That was my uh, unhealthy pattern. And I had spent a lot of my childhood trying to save my addicted mother from herself, always unsuccessfully, by the way. Uh, and uh, so um, it was, in a way, great training ground for a therapist later on in life. But uh, for my own relationships, it wasn't so good. But anyway, on this one magic day, I woke up. And then the next month, on January 10th, 1980, I met my wife, Katie, for the first time. And I actually had a wild conversation with her the first time I met her. I said, I'd like to ask you out for a cup of coffee. But I want to tell you, I just figured out these three things. And I rattled off my thing about honesty, responsibility, and commitment to creativity. I said, that's how I've messed up all my relationships. But I want to create something new now from here on out that's based on these qualities. On those terms, would you like to have a cup of coffee with me? And she said, yes, fortunate. Actually, she said she uh, escalated me when she said, how about lunch? And so uh, we had this uh, wonderful lunch with egg salad sandwiches, I remember, 40-some years later. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. We've had 10 books written together. We've been on Oprah a bunch of times. We've traveled the world 2.2 million frequent flyer miles, I think, last time we counted, and uh, done relationships all over the world. And this is from a guy who wrote an essay in the 10th grade called Why I Will Never, Ever Get Married. <laughs> and so we need essay, to see the essay i hope you still yeah, have it yeah somewhere my niece found it when she was cleaning out my mother's house after my mother passed away <laughs> down in florida uh yeah the thing was i'd had to write an essay in the 10th grade the the assignment was write three pages on something you strongly believe in three pages single spaced and so three single spaced pages i go on this rant about marriage that everybody in my family who's married either seems to have to pickle themselves in alcohol or they never speak to each other uh kindly you know i have never ever to this day heard another member of my family say something like i love you 
You know, it's just a weird thing. I mean, you would think. <laughs> it's incredible that you were able to deal with those, the mental um, challenges that one would imagine came about due to, you know, that kind of circumstance of, of being raised like that. So it, you know, speaks even more to the, the learning and the growth that you've gone through yourself. Um, I feel blessed every day that I had the opportunity to wake up out of all those trances and create something for myself because just about everybody else has created just the same old patterns over and over again. And so I, I feel creating a healthy relationship to me is my great life achievement, even though I've written 50 books and all that. Um, you know, just being able to be in a thriving marriage for 40 some years is just the most wonderful thing. And and I want to get into that. That's going to be hopefully a big focus is on on relationships and as well. Before we do, you know the the upper limit problem, right? Like at a high level. So please correct me where I'm wrong. But to my understanding, it is that the inner thermostat that really it determines how much love, success, creativity we kind of allow ourselves to feel. And so once we do kind of exceed that set point, that we're going to do something to sabotage ourselves. So kind of classic self-sabotage. And that then brings us back below the threshold where we feel comfortable. So I know you've worked with thousands of people, right? On, you know, the upper limit problem. What do you think from, from that, you know, decade of experience, decades plus of experiences is kind of the most common cause for us to trigger that upper limit problem? In one word, it's fear. And life, as long as you're maintaining the status quo and not going beyond your unconscious upper limits of how much love and success and positive energy, as long as you're staying in the middle zone there, you don't trigger those old fears. But if you start succeeding more or somebody starts loving you more or you open your heart to love more, it flushes up old fears from down in ourselves that come from way back, usually, you know. Often before we grabbed our little lunchbox and trudged off to kindergarten, a lot of those main fears are in place there. Like the big one that I encounter, and I've you know worked with Grammy winners and I've worked with juvenile delinquents, so it doesn't matter what level of the game you're at. A lot of people carry around a fear that there's something fundamentally wrong or flawed about themselves. They feel like they're the wrong weight or the wrong skin color or the wrong something. They don't have enough smarts or they don't have enough charisma or whatever it is. There's always, I'm not enough, and therefore, I don't deserve the good things of life. That's what that fear tells us. And that can come from a host of different places, but you just have to look into yourself and say, hmm, does that any of that resonate with me? There's another big fear that so many people carry around that I work with. I call it the fear of outshining, where maybe you grew up in a family where there was a golden boy or a golden girl and you weren't it, and you weren't given permission to shine like some other member of the family was. So that's a common thing that a lot of people stay tucked in behind that negative belief about I shouldn't shine in the world. I need to keep my light tucked inside. The fear is that if I really shine, it'll make other people feel bad because maybe they don't. That's the unconscious fear. But I would give you a healthier way to look at that, which is that if you let your light shine, it can illuminate lots of other people and trigger them to shine their light. So it's not going to make people feel bad. It's going to make people feel more vital and alive. So I don't know how many thousands of people I've worked with in workshops now that have raised their hand when they said that was their issue. But those are two of the biggest ones. There's a third fear that a lot of people triple up, trips their upper limit problem. And that is the fear of disloyalty, of being disloyal to people in your past if you change your life in any way. Uh, some of us feel deeply embedded in a network, a family unit or something that um, that keeps us, keeps us stuck. safe, but also keeps us stuck. Yes, you're right. And uh, Sometimes they have that function of people around us, like a friend of mine, Jack, uh, who had 10 years of sobriety. He went to a party to celebrate his 10th year of sobriety, and a member of his extended family tried to get him to take a drink. 
You know, so I mean that that's pretty blatant. Not most most of us don't have things like that, but that's an extreme example of that. A lot of times, people want to keep you stuck rather than have you express your genius. Because if you keep exp- if you start expressing your genius, it makes other people hmm. Maybe I ought to express mine. And I know we'll probably get to that later. But that's the payoff for handling your upper limit problem is you get to enter that new genius zone that I think is life's great reward. What What is the most common correction? So after those, you know, three, the fear that they're flawed, the outshining, the disloyalty, those are the fears that trigger the upper limit problem, the self-sabotage. What is the most common corrective action you find yourself giving to clients to solve those problems? One is to name the fear. Naming the fear is incredibly important. So the moment you say, oh, Right now, I can actually feel that fear about shining. Oh, right now, I'm actually feeling that old fear of fundamental flawedness in my belly. That's a sacred moment. That's a beautiful moment because if you can name it and claim it, then it's no longer running you. You have that fear, but it no longer has you. It has you as long as you're unconscious to it. The moment you name it and claim it, and particularly Use your body wisdom to deal with it. Take a few breaths. (sighs) Celebrate your fear. Open up to it. Don't let it shut you down. For millions of years, our fear has been letting us shut down. But now we're at a new stage of evolution where we can feel afraid and talk about it with each other rather than throwing a rock at each other. I know a lot of people still go for the rock solution. I think it still goes on. (laughs) Yeah. It's not sustainable. (laughs) Yeah. So the... You know, fear is something that I've been working with now with people for, I don't know, 50 years probably. And one thing I always say about fear is it's the hardest emotion to deal with because it's the one that doesn't have an automatic expressive component. Like, you know, if you get angry, you can go and clench your fists and pound on a pillow or just say, I'm angry. That's what I train people to do is just name it. And, um, We always say here at our institute that when you can talk about your feelings in the same tone of voice as you talk about the time of day, it's not it hasn't got a grip on you anymore. So if I say to you, Jared, I'm afraid that has no judgment to either one of us, really. You know, I'm not judging myself and I'm not judging you. If I say to you, Jared. Every time I see you, you really piss me off. See, I'm putting all the responsibility onto you. And of course, you would object to that probably. Wait a minute, you might say. Does that mean you don't ever get pissed off any other time in your life just when you see me? You know, so it always leads to conflict when we come out of taking when we step any way away from taking full responsibility and communicating in a clean, clear way. Uh, There are three big emotions that I've noticed. Uh, Katie and I probably have worked with coming up on maybe 5,000 couples now in the office here or in in relationship seminars. And there's three big feelings that if you know how to name them and talk about them in a straightforward way can really make relationships work better make whole life work better because they work well in business. One is being able to say, I feel angry in a straight way without triggering other people, just to be able to name your anger. A second thing is to be able to say, I feel sad or I feel hurt right now. In close relationships, that's really essential. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Third, very important one is to be able to name fear, to be able to find it in your body, down in your belly or wherever you're feeling it, and say, I'm scared. Here's why, Jared, because people come in here, couples, always stuck at the anger level. They've been blaming each other for something for months or years. In one case, I worked with a couple that had been essentially having the same argument every week or two since their honeymoon, 29 years before. You know, So if people don't know how to resolve things, they can really take over your life, basically. And this had. But what saves the day is coming down out of the anger level and getting them to say, I'm scared right now. 
because that doesn't have any judgment. It doesn't have any projection on it. It's claiming something. And the moment it happens, it has a positive effect on the other person. You know, I've seen actually, I remember one woman, her husband for the first time, he was a Vietnam vet that had been very traumatized. And he just said this simple thing. Like instead of saying, you know, why do you keep doing this, Jane? Why you whatever? He said, oh, my palms are sweaty right now. And it was just naming something. I asked him to say something that was true, but didn't involve blame. And he said, um, my hands are sweaty right now. And she burst into tears because she had never heard him in their whole marriage, especially since he came back from Vietnam, be able to say something that clear. You know, just to be able to name something that was going on inside. So that was a marriage saving moment because they were really heading in one direction. You know, John Gottman, one of the big researchers in our field, um, has something he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse in relationships that spell doom for relationships. Uh, defensiveness, withdrawal, which is a form of withholding and contempt is a particularly big one because when that's what happens a lot in here is that couples come in uh, defensiveness withdrawal criticism and contempt are the four horsemen and criticism goes for a long time it becomes contempt and uh boy it's tough to work with that's why we have to (laughs) sometimes have one couple for three days here before we can you know get them out of the trance they've been in so that brings up a really curious point to me. In the in the big leap you mentioned, 80% of successful people have unsatisfying intimate relationships. You and Katie have obviously turned that dynamic on its head. Why do you think that is so common? Well, poor training for one thing, you know, like um, it's not whether your IQ is a certain way or anything like that. It has to do with most of us don't have any practice. Well, look at, you know, I have a PhD from Stanford in counseling psychology. So I went way out of my way to learn about these things. I got a master's degree in counseling. I went way out of my way uh, once I kind of woke up and figured out what I needed to know. But, you know, before that, before all of that wake up and everything, I think I was just going through the same trances that everybody else does in relationships, looking for approval, control, you know, power struggles, all that kind of stuff. Um, I did all that in my teens and 20s. And I think that um, a lot of people just get so lost in those programs and don't have any way to wake up from them. I mean, wouldn't it be great if, well, I've actually seen a first grade classroom where the children were learning communication exercises. I happened to witness this one one time with this really gifted teacher where she was teaching children just how to communicate with each other around a problem, you know, without having to make the other person wrong. Man, it was beautiful to see six-year-olds doing things that I have trouble teaching 56-year-olds to do. <laughs> <laughs> and But there's not, you know, there's no reason we couldn't learn all these things as first graders, second graders, third graders. So anyway, I think just lack of training is one thing. Also, do you think successful people are more likely to have um, unsatisfying intimate relationships than economically less successful folks? Or because that 80% number is so striking to me that that's such a high number. Well, you know, actually, that's the first time I'd heard that today. It's actually sounded... I'm sorry to say it sounded a little low to me. <laughs> Did it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> See, R.D. Lang once said something profound. He says, most of us will die the way we were born, you know, because we'll just go through the motions. We'll go through what we've learned. We'll repeat the same patterns that we learned as kids and we'll go through them and you know, and then one day we'll wake up and die. And so I'm so glad that there's the mechanisms for waking up now. There's a, you know, there's seminars and there's self-help books. When I started, there weren't any self-help books. So you couldn't really go down to the local bookstore and browse for a solution. Now you can go down to the bookstore and you find 
25 books on how to overcome fear of speaking or public speaking. So what can what can those folks do? Those folks who find themselves, let's say 80%, I'm sure it's much higher. Um, what can those folks do to counteract the deleterious effects of success on intimate relationships outside of going to the self-help help book section? Well, I live a stone's throw from Hollywood, so I, I end up working with quite a few people from the entertainment world. And um, one of the things that's a problem in the entertainment world, as you get more successful, you get more people around you who like to say yes to you and who have a vested interest in keeping their jobs by not pissing you off. And so the, um, you know, I know one person that I've worked with on and off for years, I bet he's gone through, well, I know he's gone through half a dozen managers and agents over the years and probably 50 or 60 personal assistants. Uh, and, you know, we've worked on this. I think he's been had a good 10 years now being pretty good with this. But what happens, he gets dug into everybody saying yes to him. So if somebody says, hey, I don't know if that's such a good idea, you know, it, he, he blows his stack. And um, so, uh, but I think it's, uh, there's other factors too, Jared, that um, with success, um, there's an isolationist kind of thing that sometimes happens with successful people. I've worked a lot with well-known business people. I used to consult down at uh, Dell Computer, and um, I used to go out to the Midwest, to Motorola, and uh, other places all over the place. And one of the things I, I would, you know, sometimes be working with a CEO who would tell me something like, "You know, I never have a chance to just sit and think anymore. Everybody's always wanting a piece of me." You know, I said in the beginning, before I was successful, I could just sit and think, and that's why they got successful. You know, and I remember walking down the hall. Uh, someplace out in the Midwest with the CEO. And uh, he said, yearningly, he said, oh, if I could just have 10 minutes where I just sat and did nothing, you know? And I said, well, let's go back to your office. So we went back there and I actually, I'm a longtime meditator. I just sat with him and meditated for 10 minutes while he was just sitting and relaxing and just being with himself. Anyway, he developed a, he actually started penciling this in or putting it on his calendar because every day, if he could take just that 10 minutes of his, what he called his genius time, that's what I, I call it, his genius time, then the rest of the world, the rest of the day, you know, it seemed to unfold pretty well. It's like um, a friend of mine who uh, is a yogi, uh, a yoga teacher uh, and a longtime yogi. Uh, she says, if I can, she has three kids. And she said, if I can take an hour for my day for myself, I can give back 23 to others. But if I don't take that hour, I can't give anything. And, you know, it's that same. We need to get used to nurturing ourselves as well as reaching out and serving other people, because life has to be a balance of that, a balance of learning to love ourselves and learning to love other people and getting through all the barriers of that. Uh, but we have to look after ourselves. There's a good reason on airplanes, they tell you to put on your oxygen mask first. <laughs> and so it's a good idea because you wanna be breathing and being able to handle things and uh, before you start putting it on your children. One thing um, that I know to be true about you and Katie is that manifestation has played quite a large role in your life. So can, can you speak to that a little bit? What, what kind of role has manifesting played in where you are now? Yes. Well, first of all, it's I, I attribute miracles to it uh, because now we've created – I've basically made all my dreams come true. All my dreams have come true, and some of them are still coming true right now. Uh, but uh, – and I think because of, of what I'm about to tell you, manifestation is a fancy word that involves a couple of different processes. One is creating positive thoughts about areas that you've only been thinking negatively in before. So for example, here's the day I became a manifestation enthusiast. Katie and I had been together about a year or so maybe, and I was pedaling on my exercise book, it was an exercise bike. I, I was uh, 
living in Colorado. I used to be a professor there at the University of Colorado. And um, so I'm pedaling along on my exercise bike. And suddenly I had this thought in my mind. Oh, boy, I hope we have enough money to make it through to the end of the month. And this thought went through my mind. Then all of a sudden I realized maybe it was because of the oxygen or something. But I realized, huh. That's exactly the same thought I used to hear around me every month growing up. Have I just, even though I make more money than my parents did, have I just recreated the same pattern in my life where I'm unconsciously always worried about making it through to the end of the month? What if I made up a new, better idea than that to replace that. That was my thought. And I ran in, this was really ironic because I ran into the room where Katie was kind of hunched over uh, the checkbook, writing out the bills <laughs> for the month. <laughs> it was perfect. And so I noticed that she had her body kind of uncomfortably hunched, you know, like it was causing pain for her too. And so I, I stopped and talked to her about it and I explained what had just happened. And she said, wow, let's do that. And it was about time to go out for lunch. So I said, let's go out for lunch and figure out our how we want our life to be financially. So ironically, again, we went out to the only health food restaurant in Colorado Springs at the time. It was called Poor Richards. So we go out to create <laughs> our wealth at a place called Poor Richards. The irony. So, yeah, or the upper limit problem, maybe. Uh, but uh, anyway, we sat there over a salad and we came up with this idea to replace the, um, do we have enough money to get through to the end of the month? And it was, we always have plenty of money to do everything we most want to do. And we started just thinking that. We wrote it out. We kept writing it out. And we posted it around. We always, oh, you know, we first started, we said, we always have enough money to do everything we want to do. And we tried that out, and then we realized, oh, that's limiting. Now, I want plenty of money to do everything we want to do. It was amazing the kinds of things that just started happening right away. <laughs> Another irony, uh, out of nowhere, a, a colonel or general or something in the Air Force came to one of our seminars and came up after. We didn't know what, who the guy was or anything. We didn't know he was the big boss of this fort something rather Carson. And, um, oh, no, it wasn't Fort Carson. It was the NORAD thing, you know, where they have the missiles and all that. And he, he was a big uh, general or colonel or something there. Anyway, he came and he said, hey, I'd like you guys to come do a workshop for us. Um, can we hire you to do a, a seminar for some of our drug and alcohol counselors? And uh, we said, yeah, where where is it? And he said, you know, at the Air Force Base and everything. Katie and I, you know, we kind of come from the 60s. <laughs> I used to have a long hair and a poncho and granny glasses, you know. So the, the idea of the U.S. military asking a guy like me to do a seminar for him, I thought was hilarious. But we ended up doing this seminar and their money was good. <laughs> and so that started us off on manifestation. And so every year we started on New Year's Day, we would go out and sit on a hillside or sit on wherever we were and have a quiet hour or so where we figured out what we wanted to manifest during the year. And it's gone from everything like uh, you know, money. We, we created the kind of money we wanted to live on, and, uh, but also other things too, like, uh, oh, at the, you know, we've kind of manifested our big breakthrough moment on the Oprah Winfrey show back 30 years ago. In those days, kind of, Oprah was sort of the thing you did, you know, if you wanted to blow up big time, you had to be on Oprah. And so I can't tell you how much time we spent just kind of visualizing that and picturing that. And our publicist booked us on Oprah with her first call. I mean, that was her first call to book us anywhere. She said, I'm going to start at the top and see if Oprah wants you guys. And, uh, and, and now you know, you're like, stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, I say we went from working overnight with 10 couples in our living room to working in front of 10 million people on Oprah. And really, life has never changed or slowed down since then, you know, for the past 30 years. And uh, so um, what, what did that look like Oprah. logistically? You know, I understand the concept of manifestation. Was it once a year that you would sit down and you would 
write down the goals and and what you wanted to achieve? Or did you two make a practice of sitting down each and every day and doing that together? Or was it just an ad hoc kind of situation? Well, it was all three of those. We definitely did the New Year's Day, but we did it every day. Like we thought about it every day and we would stop and look at the things we had written around, you know, like uh, you would write it on a whiteboard. For yeah, example. we'd write it on a whiteboard. Um, <clears throat> actually, in those days, I don't even think whiteboards have been <laughs> invented. <laughs> Chalkboard. It, it was post-it notes everywhere, you know, big post-its and uh, taped up things. And um, yeah, we had a big chalkboard. Uh, so, uh, but would say something like, um, we enjoy chatting with Oprah about conscious loving would just be one little thing. And uh, another one might be, um, we attract just the perfect audience for our seminars and things like working on attracting the kind of thing we wanted rather than just letting the universe sling things our way, you know? And so I think it's good to give a little light design to life, not to get attached to stuff, but just kind of breathe life into it all the time. I love that phrase, breathe life into it. Yeah. I once saw a little boy and his dad out on a field and it was time when they were having these puff balls, you know, these little plants that have puff balls and the father would take one and he would go, and it would blow, and this little boy was probably about three or four years old, and he would go and blow the puff balls, and he would laugh, you know. And I think that's the way to launch your affirmations, is to launch them like, breathe them into existence like that little boy and his dad with the puff balls. Keep it easy. On that note of, of beauty is turning towards the, the genius zone a little bit here. And I know, of course, so many successful folks out there they do experience some kind of anxiety in some form. It's, you know, happens to all of us. And so most of us have developed some kind of method for dealing with it, exercise or routine or meditation or discipline to kind of counteract that. But you in the genius zone kind of take a very different approach. Do you mind sharing what, what folks should do to kind of overcome that anxiety? Yes. Well, the main thing do to do is to go into it and let go of trying to control it and breathe with it and celebrate it because it's got a message for you. And your genius is right on the other side of that fear. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. You have to just open up to it and let it flower without talking yourself out of it. You know, that's the key thing. Most of us have these genius little moments. Then we say, oh, no, well, like, um, one of the great conversations of my life, first time I went to Europe, 1980, I was sitting on a park bench in a garden, a big garden, and I saw a lady come across walking. She was in her 60s, and she had this pair of really sparkling new sneakers on, and she sat down on the park bench, and it turned out to be from Arizona. And I complimented her. I said, it looked like brand new sneakers. And she said, yeah, that's my sixth pair. And I said, geez, where are you walking from? And she said, Arizona. <laughs> And, <laughs> and she had on this sparkling wedding ring. And I said, uh, is your husband with you? And she said, nope, he wanted to stay at home. I said to him, you can come visit me anytime you want, but I'm going to walk around the world. And she, she was a retired school principal. She'd been looking after people all her life. She just wanted to look after herself for a while. And so her, I said, your husband, he didn't want to come. And she said, no, he didn't want to miss his favorite TV shows. And so he wanted to stay there on the couch and she walked around the world. But, you know, we've we've got to let ourselves. That's an extreme form of following your passions. But in a way, we've all got something like that that we want to do. There's something I say the two signs of genius is that you're doing what you most love to do. And you're doing something that makes a contribution to your life and other people's life at the same time. If you're doing that, you're living a genius life. I set my goal back in the 1980s. I thought I figured out I was doing that about 10% of the time. I was spending about 10% of my time in my own genius zone. So I first aimed for 30%. It took me a while to get there. So three hours out of my nine-hour day of work was spent in my genius zone. And I said, okay, if I can do three hours, I can do four hours. So I bumped it up to 50%, four and a half. And so that took me the better part of three years, I think. And 
But I said, by the end of the century, I'm going to be at 100% where I'm not doing anything that's not in my genius zone. And by golly, it you know it took me years to do it. But by the end of the century, I was only doing things that I love to do and that make a contribution to other people's lives. I managed to delegate or hire out everything else. And, uh, you know, I don't even go to grocery stores. I'm so focused on my genius. And um, so... I recommend highly that people make a conscious daily commitment to growing their genius, doing whatever it takes to grow your genius. But first is dedicating that first 10 minutes to it, you know, just sitting down for 10 minutes and writing your poem or composing your song or writing your new recipe or Uh, We say here that genius has the capacity to surprise you. So even if it's a recipe you've made 27 times, you know, like my wife is a master chef in addition to being a world-class psychologist, but she never makes the same recipe twice. It's always got little tweaks in it. And that's how genius works. It's that you always want to be flowing with it, tweaking it, opening up more to it. What do you say to people who say, I don't know what my genius is? Well, I say, write 10 minutes down in your calendar and do the following thing. This is a $25,000 gift, by the way, because when uh, corporations send their CEO here for a $25,000 uh, day of big leaps with Gay Hendricks, they have to fork over $25,000. And here's the first thing I have them do. I put them in a little room by themselves and I say, okay. No music, no pictures on the wall, no stimulation. For the next 10 minutes, I want you to do the following thing. I want you to say, hmm, what is my true genius? And then I want you to take three easy breaths. Three easy breaths. And then I want you to say again, hmm, what is my true genius? And then I give them another question. Hmm. What do I most love to do? Hmm, what do I most love to do? So we have a number of genius questions we ask them, but they're all based at first about what do you love to do? Because if you will look back even to when you were a kid, the things you like to play with will often give you the very key to what your genius is. Like with Michael, uh, Michael Dell, uh, I asked him one time, you know, what was the first present you remember getting for your birthday or whatever. And his eyes lit up. He said, I I got a calculator. I wanted a calculator because I had to figure out how that thing worked. And the first thing I did, I unwrapped it and I took it apart, you know, and that's very different from, let's say, uh, Warren Buffett. Warren, what's the first gift you can remember? A bus changer. It had actual coins in it. And I got to click and fork out 25 cents to people and things like that, you know, and that's what turns him on. With Michael Dell, he doesn't care about that kind of thing. You know, that's the farthest thing from his mind. You know, he wants to figure out how to make it work. And he figured out, oh, gosh, I got all these guys around me, nerds that know about computers, and they don't have any way to make money. And you got these idiots down in the computer shops that don't know anything. And that's who you have to buy computers from. Let me put in some phone lines here. So he borrows $1,000 from his parents. Gets his fellow nerds, you know, he's a consummate <laughs> nerd. He, get, he no, knows nothing but nerds, but they love to talk about computers. You know, they'll get up in the middle of the night and answer questions about computers. So he starts selling computers direct. He borrowed $1,000 from his parents to get him underway. And I think he gave him back maybe $100, $150 million, uh, later on. And uh, so if your kid ever comes to you and says, hey, dad, I want to drop out of college. And start Encourage my own it. business. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the $25,000 lesson. Uh, I very much appreciate it. I, I wonder, as you think about, again, a very, I think a hard question to answer. As you think about the upper limit problem, as you think about the zone of genius, this is about human potential and, and performing at our, our top as you think about those two specifically, what, what are the most important or what's the most important thing that you wish listeners would take away from the zone of genius or from the upper limit problem? 
One of the things that I've dropped in several times as I really want to reinforce is what I call wonder questions. Like that question, hmm, what do I most love doing? That's a question, I call it a wonder question because a wonder question has two characteristics. It's something you really want to know and something you really don't know. You know, I can think of my friend George, who's a psychiatrist, but he was a very lonely guy, you know, and up until he was maybe 35, he'd never had any close relationships or anything. And he got into this wonder question, and this wonder question was so beautiful about, hmm, how can I have the love I want and need in my life? And how can I give the 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 love I know I can give. So he he wondered about it for the first time. Instead of going about it in a state of stress, oh my God, I've never had a close relationship. Oh my God, I've had 17 relationships break up. Oh my God. He was always in that state of despair about it, but to finally get to break through to wonder. You see, because wonder and creativity come out of the same wellspring. The moment you begin to wonder about something, you open up to new creative possibilities because you're not clogging the spring with the past. You know, you're open to something brand new. Hmm. Interestingly enough, Jared, when you hum, it integrates the two sides of your brain. Hmm. Hmm. Now we're all going to have to try it. And Johan Berlin has a has a similar idea around wonder. We put all this pressure on ourselves to try and figure everything out when we just should just kind of embrace the wonder, the beauty of not knowing and the journey. And that's really where the beauty of life is. But to kind of before we do wrap up, um, what is what do you wish that I had asked you about the books, about your life, about relationships? about anything that, that I didn't? Is there anything there that you wished I had asked you? Hmm, I can't think of anything. We've covered a lot of territory, much more than I expected to cover in this conversation. So I uh, appreciate your listening skills for drawing things out that uh, I hadn't even expected. I like to be surprised, though. You are incredible. And so, Dr. Gay Hendricks, with that note, I just, I so deeply from the bottom of my heart want to thank you for being here. You are somebody who has achieved remarkable and thing, remarkable things in your life. I know there is still much more to come. And I'm just very, very grateful that you're interested in, in sitting down. For the listeners, if you do want to learn more about Dr. Gay Hendricks, highly, highly recommend any of his books. If you're interested in this conversation, then particularly The Big Leap, as well as uh, The Genius Zone, those are going to be your best places to start. You can find all of their work at www.hendrix.com. Dr. Gay Hendricks, thank you so much for sitting down with us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.